Let's do this. What is virtualization? You're going to learn today. Innovate like a startup, deliver like an enterprise. I hope you're coffeeed up and ready because it's going to be a great day. I know you're going to dig this. Oh, yeah. You're listening to the Virtually Speaking Podcast with Pedro Arrow and John Nicholson. Good afternoon and welcome to the Virtually Speaking Podcast. My name is Pete Fletcher and joining me as always is my good friend, John Nicholson. John, how you doing, man? Good. I'm uh, trying to get the air conditioner at just the right temperature here. You really? know, I'm, I'm playing with the thermostat, going back and forth. Um, you know, I just changed the air filters and I'm slowly yeah. realizing looking you know, around at my AC components and everything, and even the filter, there's this, this company that's pervasive in my life and making sure that, you know, I'm comfortable. Yeah. Um, I know that logo very well. It's on all my uh, devices as well. That's Honeywell. They probably make a lot of money in Houston considering how hot and humid it is there. I mean, you guys probably spend more money there on air conditioning than anybody else. It's, uh, you know, I think I've got seven tons of AC for my, my house. So um, <laughs> I don't know what yeah. a ton actually means, but I've got all of them. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, we're definitely talking. We want to talk a little bit about Honeywell today. We've got some some gents from from Honeywell, but man, John, they do more than air conditioning over there. As you know, we've in, we've uh, interviewed some folks in the past. You know, they do aerospace to automotive to uh, auto- product for residential, commercial, and industrial control systems. I mean, they're just in about every business that you can think of. This company's been around forever, uh, and they're pretty big, but. They're also a VMware customer uh, and and good friends of the Virtually Speaking podcast, and we want to welcome two gentlemen from the uh, the IT team there. Starting with our good friend, Mister Stephen Hudek. Stephen, how are you, sir? Hey, good guys. How are you? Pretty good. Welcome to the show, and also Matthew Hayes. Matthew, welcome. Thank you. So, guys, I want to talk to you about what's going on uh, at Honeywell. There's a lot of different areas we can talk about, um, but I. I also want to talk to you about VMware Explorer. I know you guys are going to be there. I'm looking forward to seeing what Honeywell is going to be doing uh, in terms of uh, pres- sessions or, or panels and things like that. But why don't we start first with a good story that I heard recently about Honeywell and the pandemic. I heard you guys stepped in in, in a major way concerning masks. Uh, who wants to tell that story? I can tell the story. I'm quite familiar with this. Uh, so yeah, during the beginning of the pandemic, when there was a shortage of the N95 mask, it's a product that Honeywell already produced. Uh, we set up a new production line here in Arizona uh, for that mask. And when the when we, we got it up in like five weeks, which is if you've ever worked in manufacturing, that's the land speed record for setting production line. And one of the benefits that we had is the existing production line for the N95 mask all the control systems were already virtualized. So we just had to get the equipment there, stand up a stack, and we were able to simply clone that whole production stack across the country to the other side and get this you know, uh, N95 mask production line up to speed, producing masks, and you know, to help meet the you know, market need for the N95 masks. Well, and what's fun with this is that, you know, a lot of times when people you know have built something up over time they've kind of sometimes forgotten how to build it or okay we have backups we can restore it but having your infrastructure ready to de- redeploy in a consistent and repeatable manner that's that's awesome like that's the dream um oh, yeah. what kind of what kind of went into being able to be ready to do that so to speak well a, a good chunk of it was you know just the fact that we it was one of the few sites that was already, you know, with the production lines on, you know, virtualization platform. That that was a real benefit. 
having consistent hardware on the manufacturing side was also really, you know, helpful because if you know you use a different version of this, you know, press that has a different control system, you can't just clone that over. You got to deploy the full control system. So really the similarity and standardization of that pr- production line is what helped speed that up. Yeah. I'm curious because obviously you, you've already been making these, these N95 masks, but then when the pandemic comes around, what was the ask? Like how many times the normal amount that you would make were you, were you asked to do? Yeah, that is a question I'm not 100% uh, sure of what the actual ask was. Delivery was pretty significant. It was enough to get us a visit by the president at the time, came out and took a tour of the facility. So, I mean, we we definitely stood up. And if you go to, if you ever find yourself at our headquarters there in North Carolina, and they take you to the Innovation Center, there's actually a brag plate about this effort that lights up in front of you about the N95 mask effort and delivering these masks during the pandemic. I was going to say, is this encouraging like other areas of manufacturing to virtualize more? Was is this thing that y'all are looking to repeat throughout the rest of the organization? Or yeah, we're looking to uh, really modernize our a lot of our manufacturing sites. So this was a, a big effort to do. You know, there's a an industry word called you know digital twinning uh, that's going out there now, where you kind of taken that that one site and you can clone it to make a secondary site to uh, to really make it look like uh, the first site. That speeds up the process again. Uh, like Matt had kind of talked about, it can take months you know, to stand up a new production line at a manufacturing facility. And we were able to shave that to weeks because of that process. When spending some time previously around manufacturing or just large industrial systems, it's sometimes jarring how many ancient operating systems end up like embedded in stuff. I mean, there was some local guys here who do flame cutting um, as part of an assembly process. And it was like, hey, this version of Windows is, you know, archaic, you know, and, and being able to to manage that stuff, secure it, repeat it and and do that, that's something that looks like it's it's not something, I guess, you know, can you speak, I guess, to some of the challenges of working with manufacturing just in general with some of these control systems that people who aren't familiar with this world? Yeah, there's there's a lot of challenges around this. Uh, you kind of hit on it. There's a whole, whole mix of operating systems. And it's not just the old legacy stuff. You come across some operating systems and control systems that aren't really ideal for VMware, you know, your, your near time and your real time uh, operating systems don't sit well when you put them on top of a hypervisor because that introduces a weight state and they don't like weight states. So there's a whole bunch of challenges around that manufacturing space. On top of that, you need to be able to deliver you know, a proper security model. Uh, it's the Purdue model. You can look it up, but it's a network security model to separate your OT from your, you know, your enterprise network in an effort to make sure that nothing bleeds through and gets back in there where those systems are, like you said, out of date, unmanaged, difficult to maintain and keep those, you know, the bad actors out of your OT space. So talking about some of those kind of different platforms, um, I heard you all actually were looking at having to emulate in some case other platforms. Uh, can you speak to that? Because I know, you know, most of my career, I'm fortunate enough to have entered kind of, you know, the enterprise and the the Wintel era where everything was on x86. But I acknowledge there's other stuff out there. What else have you had to deal with? So we're, we're working on emulating some of those mid-range systems as well. So some of the, the mainframe systems, the stuff that's, that's archaic, that's been out there for 25 years, you know, running the same machinery, you know, day in and day out, um, you know, that hardware can be hard to come by now. It's expensive to keep some of those that hardware alive and running and, and supported. Uh, so that's really what we're looking at is emulating some of those mid-range systems, get them on a virtualization platform where we can 
support them. They can be backed up even because a lot of those systems aren't even really backed up to make sure that we can we can provide you know near time support for them. See, that's fun just because like running again, some of those mainframe systems, um, like anytime you start running some weird Unix flavor or you're running UX or something else, you suddenly are like, oh, I have to have a different process for backups, a different process for data protection. But if you can shove that in a VM, now you can replicate it, hit it with backup APIs, so forth, all that. Um, that's that's definitely a benefit I hadn't really thought you know of. But yeah, helping collapse that skill set required. Um, Honeywell used to make mainframes, right? We, we did a while ago. <laughs> Does Honeywell make the uh, the lights that automatically go out when you're in a Zoom call and you don't move very often, or is that? Just... I, I I think that's us. Yes. Sorry about that. I, I didn't know that um, was shut down. Yeah. For those only listening to the audio, it was nice to see uh, mid conversation Matthew just completely disappear from the screen and just fade to black. That was that was pretty cool. Hey, at least it was a soft fade out. Yeah. <laughs> so so talking about emulating, you know, some of these mainframes or Superdome or other kind of platforms, um, CPU emulation kind of scares people. They think there's overhead, there's problems like that. And there is overhead, I guess, you know. But what how did you have that conversation with those operators? How did you t- walk them through? How did you validate that platform? You know, was there any resistance from the the operators on those platforms or or the app owners? Honestly, we haven't had too much resistance around it, especially once we explain the risk mitigation this is because this is all about risk mitigation you know you, you lose a power supply in a hp superdome you're going to ebay trying to find one right <laughs> yeah uh, these these parts aren't commodity anymore they're they're rare so we're we're going to put this effort through we're going to bring you over here and these commercially made emulators are fantastic you know you know on, as far as matching the hardware that they're coming off of and very mature. So, you know, it's just comes down to a question of risk. You know, do you, do you guys want to be down for, you know, on the, on this platform for, you know, maybe a day while we move you over to, you know, the, maybe you know, longer the eBay, cuts off, eBay cuts off your PayPal account. You know? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Or do you want to be down for weeks while we, you know, try to find a part to replace this? So that yeah. risk mitigation is really the key here. And um, John, you're right. These things are incredibly inefficient because to do a 300 megahertz Superdome, you need three gigs of CPU processing. Okay. I was wondering what the ratio is. That said, you know, it probably, if you've got a 20 year old mainframe, congrats, it probably ran at 300 megahertz. So exactly. The, the VAX, the alpha VAXs are a little more forgiving. I think they can go down to, it's like a 60% overhead for VAX, but for the Hewlett Packard and the sparks, they're pretty heavy on CPU. Okay. That is interesting though, because there are plenty of customers out there and it's weird. They like mentally wrap their head around and they're like, oh, that's legacy IT. Let's go talk about the fun things and VRA and all the other cool stuff we're going to do. And it's yeah. like, no, 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 no. Like that thing makes us money. We need to figure out a strategy. And this is, I haven't talked to anybody really doing emulation on other CPUs to go after this stuff. So this is kind of cool. Um, yeah. About the only one that we can't find a solution for would be IBM Power. And a lot of people are going to be jumping up and down going, well, I got a PowerPC emulator, but those are, PowerPC is a subset of power. And power, the PowerPC emulators that you find out there are mostly geared towards either Nintendo consoles or old Macs, right? IBM Power itself, if you read the ISA for the actual power and you go through it, the power chips, Power 4, 5, you know, the stuff in the IBM i-Series AIX and all that stuff, to maintain a certain level of backwards compatibility does a lot of weird stuff that you can't do through an emulator, like a power chip 
can flip the Indianism, you know, the bite order of a running core. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. But so, I mean, that's also why with those systems, you just, you know, call IBM, you buy another one. Exactly. Exactly. The everything compiles, it runs, you know, but that's interesting, even Spark. So, you know, I, that is, that is a platform that, yeah, I very much, I've seen airline like critical control systems. Yeah. At eBay, dealing with eBay parts on ancient Spark boxes. So it is good to sing that we can finally brute force our way through that. Yeah, Stephen, you were talking last time you and I spoke. We were talking about some of the efforts that you guys were doing for uh, scaling out your data center, uh, your data center stack out to edge. Maybe you could tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, it's a it's a great solution that we're looking for. Is is really when, when you deal with manufacturing and, and you deal with uh, you know data center, you want to try and get that supportability feel end to end. So you've got operations teams that are supporting data centers, but sometimes they're not used to supporting those workloads out in the edge sites. Uh, so really what we did is we wanted to architect our edge, which we're calling edge, our manufacturing sites, office engineering, in a way that it's got the same look and feel as our as our data centers. So uh, you know we're utilizing VRA out to the edge where before we did uh, server deployments via self-service uh, with VRA to allow users to deploy servers in our data centers. And we took that methodology and we pushed it out to the edge. So at a manufacturing site before, it could take weeks to even get a virtual machine spun up because that VM had to be deployed manually and joined to the domain manually and all that now, where instead we're utilizing those blueprints from the data center to the edge. So if we need a new solution deployed to the edge, it's, it's self-service just like the, like the data centers. Yeah, that's a long that's a long way from uh, what John used to explain is uh, you know sharing a closet with telco information and and one uh, domain controller or one little server that doesn't even have uh, you know redundant power on it uh, and, and a, a tape drive that you ask some random person in the office who's not IT function to swap daily. Um, Hopefully, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I mean, really obviously, the uh, the Lego building blocks type scenario. We're all you know our sites. We look pretty much the same across the board. You know, same compute platform, same backup platform, so that they're easily uh, supported. Uh, it also provides us a way to have all of our standard images, our standard security tools, all of our processes end to end are are capable from the data center all the way to the edge. Well, and with these kind of advanced compliance requirements on from security and reporting, and like you say, the extra segmentation, that stuff got really messy when in the physical world. I remember you started having this like rat's nest of separate cables and wires and things, and you'd have you know eight eight one gig connections coming out of host or something you know crazy, and being able to kind of consolidate some of that stuff down, virtualize that, tag that stuff helps quite a bit. Yeah, the, the networking stack as well, you know, doing a lot with the software defined networking stack helps us with that, where we can do more of the you know the east west you know control of networking and, and firewalling and, and uh, items like that. I think I saw someone on a control network once have a dedicated ASA 5505 for every single server. I remember tilting my head being like, there has to be a better way to do this. Uh, but like you said, virtualized east-west you know, firewalling is, is fantastic for that kind of stuff. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So uh, Honeywell has been, you know, obviously many data centers works and now pushing that out to the edge as well through VRA. That's pretty impressive. Uh, what about the cloud? Are you guys doing any type of uh, cloud offerings, multi-cloud, hybrid cloud or that? Yes, we, we uh, technically our internal cloud is a hybrid cloud. We are consuming uh, some, you know, virtualization resources out there in one of the hyperscalers. Uh, and we do have the VRA stretched out into the hyperscaler. So it's a seamless, you know, it's pretty seamless from the edge out to the hyperscaler within Honeywell. Well, it's, it's nice that you can build those images once and run them wherever you need. And on the edge, your compute requirements probably aren't growing enough. You deploy your four or six or whatever your t-shirt sizes and nodes. But if you have really dynamic stuff, you know, for the core data center type use cases, you can burst in cloud. 
I'm really curious yeah. what kind of uh, challenges you may have seen through, uh, you know, when you've got such a on-premises, you know, footprint with, you know, whatever virtualization technology, and you've got this pushed out to the edge. How does that work with the various clouds? Has the management of that been complex or does it just work? Well, and this this goes into another discussion that we've been having. So one of the things we're pushing for is to try to make sure the management, much like the deployment of these workloads, is consistent no matter where you land. So from that point of view, we're taking our VROPs and we're extending it internally through the, you know, the ability to tie it into, you know, v, uh, VROPs orchestrator and doing custom workflows. Thankfully, we're able to steal some of the code from the VRA guys because they got some pretty neat stuff that we can use, especially around standard changes and stuff like that. So we can track them and we're putting all that. We're, we have an effort that we're kicking off to essentially make VROPs where you go to do 90 80 to 90 percent of your effort so you know you, you should never log into a hypervisor manager directly unless you're dealing with a hardware situation or you actually need to get into the vm itself vrops is completely disconnected for authentication from you know the various management planes for a reason and it's, it's a compliance compliance game that we're playing with this yeah, you don't want to give every junior admin keys to the castle just to you know exactly. move a VM. <laughs> I remember my first job and just being handed root and domain admin and looking in like level 15 on switching. I look back and go, gosh, what were they thinking? Um <laughs> thankfully, you know, I wasn't in charge of anything that you know had national security implications or worked on, you know, any hushaboom technology or anything. But the, the world's grown up a lot in the last 20 years on audit ring requirements, reporting requirements, but also just the scale you operate at, like segmenting that out makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So I'm glad to see that there's software like VROps that completely takes the keys away and lets people do what they need to do without, you know, getting, you know, without hurting too much. Yeah. Usually in the uh, role-based access controls within VROps, we can, we can pretty much pin a user to, to specific role to make it a, an operator's console. Uh, that way we can have, you know, true follow the sun, you know, methodology from a support uh, perspective. Nice. Yeah. That was kind of cool. You're, let's drill into that a little more. So from a being able to have follow the sun, like export your your support access. How do you do that when there's also a lot of requirements on um, need to know or only these nationals can touch this data? Like, how do you segment access on being able well, to have support assistance for non-U.S. nationals on U.S. data or or in Europe also GDPR that type of stuff? Well, you you just hit on the big key: data. They can't access the data, so by having VROPs completely segmented from whatever the VMware, you know, VMware or cloud management platforms, you, if you need to get into the data, you still have to log into that management platform, right? So you click the button that says, take me there. It's going to open up the the web URL to get to that thing. If you don't have authentication, you're not getting to the data. Whereas if you're in VROPS, you can still reboot. You can do a snapshot. You can remove the snapshot. You don't have access to the data. I kind of, it's it's akin to, you know, I can walk around your house, I can turn on and off your hose, I can look in your window, but I can't really get into your house. I can paint your house, but I can't get into your house. Yeah. So as long as they can't get into the house, they can't get to the data. So if I've got a water leak, my neighbor can go turn off my water meter because it's outside. Exactly. They can throw the master, the breaker outside, uh, but they can't, the door is not open. Yep. Um, no, that's kind of fun because that is something, you know, and follow the sun support. 
I never worked somewhere that had to follow the sun operation until I joined VMware. And before that, you know, you had a pager or you had a phone or you, you know, and I, I remember still to this day, my wife's like, why is your phone under your pillow? I'm like, well, I need the buzz to wake me up when ops call. Oh, wait, I'm, I'm not an ops. Like, but that's <laughs> it is so it is delightful to know that, you know, oh, something happens at 3 a.m. This is somebody else's problem until like I've had coffee and being able to segment that out is it's. Once you reach a certain scale, you can't just have people working at 3 a.m. on stuff. You've got to segment that out. And this is for anyone who's out there who's who's looking at that, you know, this kind of model like they're talking about, being able to say, hey, they can reboot the VM. Maybe they can extend a VMDK if you need some more space. They can take a snapshot. They can restore from backup, but they can't pull up the actual VM console or they don't have local authentication into that or they can't copy the data out. Maybe like you can restrict those per- restrict those permissions where the data is safe uh but the access this is this is big and this isn't sometimes people think follow the sun is about cost cutting operations it's not it's about having people who are actually functionally awake and have had coffee touching operations uh which is just key to a reliable environment yeah and you know it's it's very important for us because we do have a significant number of manufacturing sites that are you know three shifts so they run 24 7 pretty much nice that is uh that that is fun. That whole like spin up, spin down of shifts and like the capabilities. Um, that that definitely also makes sense for kind of a, a an elastic cloud model sometimes in regards to that. Um, but it also you know the other thing also is, is because of that that type of stuff, you also have to have a lot of local resources, and so it explains why you're doing all this edge work, doing all this you know connectivity work. Yeah, yeah and, and with the edge work as well. Um, you know the the one thing we really haven't touched on is is you have all this hardware now and all this software, and you've got to keep it secure and patched. So really with our edge design and our architecture, we, we over-architected a little bit so that we've got that extra headroom uh, where we can do patching, lifecycle management. Um, and even to the point that we, we, we wanted to make it resilient enough that we can patch a, a manufacturing plant during the workday. You know, you don't want someone at 2 a.m. doing a, an upgrade to the hypervisors because uh, they're, you know, sleepy on their pillow. Um, so a lot of those upgrades to, to manufacturing sites were actually executing during the day because we have the resiliency, the redundancy uh, to have a host out while we're actually uh, in production. You mean you don't send an email saying there's going to be a, a four-hour outage window between you know 12 midnight and, and 4 a.m.? No, I mean, it, you know, they we still have a, a full change process that everything follows and the site is aware of it, but it, it's uh, it's less of a, a kick uh, a kick and match now to get those updates during the day because they, they trust that we get them done in a good manner. Th- this is something that operationally, I feel like for a long time, there was this viewpoint of you had to have you had to do patching in the de- in the dead of night and you had to have like a, a full window where people were willing to accept stuff down. And instead, you know, if you designed to N plus one, N plus two, whatever it is that gives you that comfort factor of, hey, we can still have a failure during a patch window or whatever that is. If you can design to that and have enough extra performance resources, maybe, you know, instead of have three giant nodes have you know, four or five, six, seven, slightly smaller nodes, more evened out. So that failure, that node off for patching is less impactful. Being able to patch during the day is amazing. Um, I remember the first time I worked in an environment that wasn't stressed for resources. And yeah, I could hit update all and go eat a sandwich and kind of half stare at the console. But um, whether your eyes on glass or not, that is something that's a lot better than, and I think dead at night patching the alternative, you know, to what you're doing also runs a lot of risks because people may not fully check all the applications or things in the middle of the night. And then you get that 7am call after you're awake till 3am. And that's, that's just not a healthy place. So 
it just helps from a supportability as well too, because you know we try to open proactive tickets and all that. So we have support on the phone. So rather than being on the phone at two a.m. gathering logs, you know they can be on the phone at you know ten or eleven a.m. their time gathering the logs, and you know there's more support assistance uh, sometimes. Yeah, no, it's uh, kicking that off in the middle of the day means you're less likely to have a shift transition for follow the sun for your vendors too. So um, everybody has kind of the same issues. Well, it also, if the factory itself, if the manufacturing facility is a three shift 24-7 operations, you don't have that overnight downside. Yeah, yeah. for sure. It's, it's It forces no you to exists. reconcile that operational practice, having that third shift. Nice. I like it. Data center, edge, cloud. It seems like you guys have got it all covered. Uh, and I know you're going to be at VMware Explorer this year. We're looking forward to, to meeting back up with you guys and chatting. But what are you guys doing there in terms of sessions or or anything else you have going on that week? Yeah, so uh, we're we're actually all over uh, VMware Explorer this year. Uh, uh, I know Steven's in a few sessions. I'm sitting on a bunch of panels uh, around around VCF and acquisitions. We also have our cloud team, which manages our VRA. They're coming out and giving a presentation on the last day about their effort with VRA and, you know, standardizing the VRA effort, or, you know, deployments. Uh, Steven, what sessions are you in? Uh, right now, I'm in a VCF, uh, what's new, best practices, operational uh, overview, uh, VCF on Wednesday right now. But I'm uh, very nice. possibly getting in another panel or two. Uh, so it's pretty exciting. Very yeah, nice. we also we also have uh, I believe you guys talked to Paul before. Oh yeah, Australia. I, yeah, I've, Paul I've met him in Australia. Nice guy. Yeah, Paul's coming out. He's he's on the product side. Uh, you know, obviously we're inside Paula's product side. Huge difference. Uh, but Paul is going to be doing. He's sitting on a panel about manufacturing also. So he he will be out there in VM World or VM Explore. I, I would say I'll be making sure to attend not only your sessions but his Paul. Talking to him, the platforms that he works with, those control systems to where there's billions of dollars dependent on those things never going down. Like that is some some wild stuff. It's it's frankly humbling seeing some of the crazy places that our joint solutions have ended up in. Yeah. I like all that. Understanding the technology is really fascinating and seeing how all this works, but seeing it applied to companies as large as Honeywell and actually seeing that stuff at work is super, super exciting. I love it. I will leave links below uh, uh, in the show notes of the podcast uh, for all the sessions that you guys are attending. And I'd like to extend an invitation to join our session on Thursday. Uh, we will be doing a virtually speaking podcast live on Thursday, I think at 1115. Uh, and so the only reason I won't be at Paul's session is if it's the exact same time as that. Other than that, I'll see you at Paul's session. Uh, and yeah, we'll be doing some interviews throughout the week. So uh, for those listening, and of course, uh, to the gentleman on the call, the Honeywell team, we hope we can have you back uh, in our chairs talking about what's going on that week uh, on the week of Explore. Yeah, looking but forward to Appreciate the time. Yeah. For now, I just want to thank you guys for uh, joining us on the Virtually Speaking Podcast, and we'll see you soon. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon.